Hello, and welcome to the 14th episode of the Refuting Marxist Inconsistency, Capital and the TSSI series. It's the one you've been waiting for. This week, the panellists give our final appraisal of Andrew Kleiman's Reclaiming Marx's Capital and what we see as the main political and theoretical implications of it. This one is a belter. This week, I have two new Patreon subscribers to thank, Jedi Davion and Chris Alla, bringing the total number of patrons to 29. If and when I reach 50, I will produce an extra Patreon-only episode every month, and fortnightly if I reach 100. So if you'd like some of that, you too can become part of the gang gang by clicking on that there Patreon button. All Patreons get the episodes a few days early, and they get to vote on and take part in the reading groups. Those Patreons that have cash to burn and donate at the higher tiers get extra benefits like a personally handcraft commie badge, picking an episode topic or guest, or even a one-on-one call with yours truly. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also make sure to like, subscribe and share, and you can join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the momentous discussion. Hello and welcome to part 14 of the Refuting Marxist Inconsistency and the TSSI series. This is our final episode. It's been a long old haul. We're on to the final chapter, which is basically a roundup and conclusions, which is chapter 12. Before we start, let's bring in, we've got a full panel here today. We have got Emmanuel, who is roaming the streets of Kyoto for a Wi-Fi signal at 5.30 in the morning in Japan. <laughs> Emmanuel, how are you? I am I am terrific. And I finally, finally found a good spot where the Wi-Fi wouldn't actually kick me out. It's right by a busy street, so it might be uh, might be some traffic sounds that you hear, but uh, it's all part of the coming to you live from Kyoto business. So, <laughs> Tanya, it's giving it a retro feel. It sounds like you're on the phone, like from the 1974 Olympics. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> might just speak like this for the entire show. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, <brilliant. laughs> retro voice. Okay. Uh, speaking of retro voices, Alexa, give us your uh, Lexi. Hey, give hey. us your retro voice. Your Midwestern hey. English. My Midwestern English. Yeah. Um, coming to you live from the future. Just sitting here wondering what it will take for the Shroffians to capitulate to the TSSI. God damn it! I don't know. <laughs> Who else do we have? We've got the raging Varn Meister, Derek Varn, all the way from Utah, minus 47 degrees Celsius. Derek, how's it going? I'm I'm in a bunker, so I'm okay. I'm the opposite uh, of Emmanuel right now. I'm like quasi underground. You you and Alex Jones, huh? In the bunker. <laughs> and finally laughing there, we have uh, we have our mashed up Marxist himself. Puya, how's yeah. how are you? I'm good, Tom. How how are you doing? Not too bad. Okay, well, let's rock it into it. We've got our final chapter here. We are going to go through the kind of roundup numbered points that Andrew has in this final chapter. Afterwards, then we're going to have a bit of a discussion on what we think the political implications are and our own individual feelings on the book and the quality of the arguments therein. Okay, who would like to try and go for the first one or two of these. Uh, Derek, you start. The physical quantities approach, physicalism, is necessarily incompatible with Marx's theory that value is determined by labor time. Simultaneous valuation 
necessarily leads to the physicalist conclusions. Hence, a lot of internal inconsistencies in Marx's theory arise when he is construed as a simultaneous. Number two, direct textual evidence also suggests that Marx was a temporalist. A great deal of evidence clearly favors this interpretation. The evidence that supposedly disconfirms it admits of a plausible and in some cases more plausible temporalist reading. How can you, as a side note, how can you argue that Marx is not a temporalist when like labor time is a I don't know, man. category? Like... I don't know, man. You know, what I did just to pop back into some of the source material was I took a look at uh, Shrafia's production of commodities by means of commodities. Forget the actual title of the book. I, I wanted to see how his model was built and how he justified the quote simultaneism. And I think he just makes a mention of, oh, well, you know, I added the profit here because then otherwise you couldn't add the profit. And he just moves on. Like it's like maybe a sentence. And he's a, a very clear writer, very clear model builder. But oh my God, like why is it obvious that this is okay? Why is it so obvious that once you figure out that it's mutually exclusive with Marx or labor theory of value, that you must keep doing it? It is one of the most confounding things to me. It was the clearest thing about the mathematical models that I thought was off. But again, I didn't really have like the confidence as an intellectual to say for sure, well, this is bullshit. Like I do now, I feel like it's, that's, that's total bullshit. I can't believe that this is the dominant approach. Yeah, I mean, I feel like points one and two are like, literally, if you believe in the categories mentioned, that value is determined by labor time, which it is stated explicitly, then how can you argue that Marx is not a temporalist because labor time? I mean, like, I really like it's that basic. Like, <laughs> so I was reading the chapter on the tendency for the rate of profit to fall by Marx, mm-hmm. and he's always talking about. The falling rate of profit is the appearance of peculiar to capitalism of increasing labor productivity. So it's it's this it's the value aspect which labor productivity changes. It's not you know it's a value aspect which that um the tendency for the rate of profit is felt in. It's not it's yeah. not in the physical quantities. Well, I mean, for a person who's who labeled his own philosophy, scientific socialism, and historical materialism, how could none of this exist in time? I really can't. Like, I know I'm sounding like I'm harping, but like, how could you ever come to that conclusion? You have to ignore not just the text. You have to ignore also every other part of Marxist philosophy. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, they pretty much mathematically block out the dynamism of capitalism in a really bizarre way. I mean, I guess it secures like, you know, optimistic models. So optimistic, you can't replicate Marx's crisis theory. But but also you couldn't explain how capitalism even came into being. Anyway. <laughs> they also make sure that value can never rise. They rescue value theory by making sure value can never increase. It's an incredibly strange interpretation. Well, and everybody insists that they understand that value is historically relative to capitalism yet they conflate it with a physical quantities approach, which is usually the kind of thing that political economy does when they're making more trans-historical claims. And so maybe I could take it on face value. Okay, let's take it on face value that they really, no, they really get it. They really understand Marx, you know, Postone didn't teach them anything new, but they're still modeling it like this. That's hard for me to believe. Okay, 
I, I will say that one, you know, if, if you do accept one and two, like, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that exactly where, you know, the TSSI says that uh, value is determined is exactly where it's determined. It's just yeah, that, you know, you, go you can't do simultaneism. So three, direct textual evidence suggests that Marx was a single system theorist. A good deal of evidence clearly favors this interpretation. Evidence abduced on behalf of the dual system interpretation is equally compatible with the single system interpretation. So this is uh, Kleiman actually invoking the heuristic of parsimony and charity at once. So like if a single system, which is simpler, you have textual evidence for it and the dual system interpretation parts that seem to also match the text can be completely compatible with the simpler single system interpretation. Duh. Um. <laughs> um, I I, I, I want to just uh, have an aside here that there's been a long controversy about Engels' uh, editing of volume three and whether he distorted what Marx was saying. Well, I mean, it turns out that he, he cut something that was sort of important. And when you restore that, it becomes absolutely clear that Marx was a single system theorist. It's the, it's the cost price equation that Ramos points to for the melt. And Andrew actually brings up the quote in his book. And in the new introduction by the editor of the restored uh, volume three, who happens to be Fred Mosley, he points out the same equation. This one was just, I think, put out under the historical materialism series. Oh, it's not, not even called that. It's called the economic manuscripts of blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Who, who do we trust more, Engels or Mosley? Well, <laughs> love Engels, but, but, he, but he cut out the cost price equation and kind of contributed to this uh, dual systems reading. What they should do is scan them all in and let people be able to upload them on the internet. Yeah, God damn it. They, they He's a communist. But at least now we do have the unedited, supposedly the unedited version of the manuscripts. So there's, it's, this is supposed to be as close yeah. to straight translation of the notes as, as you get. Yeah, and Kleiman's conclusion lines up with the editor of that manuscript. So yeah, take that, Heinrich. <laughs> Let, let's move on, will we, to part four? Uh, proofs of the Ocasio theorem are logically invalid. Well, this is the only one that I don't agree with as written. As I've mentioned before, Kleiman is, is pulling a bit of a rhetorical fire punch here by saying that because it doesn't actually replicate Marx's theory and it's meant to replicate Marx's theory, therefore it's logically invalid. But it's logically invalid in the sense that it follows from its premises. The problem is the premises don't actually model Marx. Yeah, it's logically yeah. valid in that it follows from its premises, but its premises right. are not Marxian. So right. it's a disagreement on premises, not a disagreement on validity. And right. that's a misstatement of formal logic, technically. So if yeah. to make this statement more true, we could say the proofs of a Koshu theorem, if viewed as a representation of, of Marxist theory, would be logically invalid. Correct. Um, if they are logically valid, they are not a representation of Marx's theory. Okay, so we're quite clear on that then. So number five, the Ocasio theorem does not disprove Marx's law of the tendential fall in the rate of profit. Its conclusions hold only true when input and output prices are a priori assumed to be equal. Yeah, simultaneous. Okay, that's that's mm -hmm. that's essentially the same point that we made on the previous one. Okay, so we yeah. will move on. So the, then we have point number six. Puya, can you see it? Do you want to read it? Yeah, the law of a tendential fall in the rate of profit becomes logically valid once a priori assumption that 
Input and out- output prices are equal is jettisoned. If faster productivity growth tends to lower prices, the temporally determined rate of profit, A, can fall under the conditions in which Okishio theorem says that it must rise, necessarily tends to fall in relation to the theorem's simultaneous physicalist rate of profit, and can fall forever even if a simultaneous physicalist rate of profit rises forever. Yeah, I think the TSSI successfully demonstrates that this is the case in accordance with Marx's value theory as stated and uh, his law of attendance flaw in the rate of profit and volume three. Yeah, I, I think it's a great representation of this and does the job perfectly, you know, as far as I can tell with the knowledge base that I have. Right. And again, just to make a note about pluralism, like, you know, Andrew's not saying this is the only way Marx can be read in general, but like, this is the one that makes sense of Marx. This is the one mm-hmm. that and, builds his model and comes to his conclusions. Yeah, this is a good reason to adopt this interpretation. It's yeah, because yeah. it makes sense of Marx. Because yeah. because the heuristic of charity would dictate. I know I'm bringing up all these like analytic heuristic rules, but they're good to remind people of. The heuristic of yeah. charity would dictate that if you have two interpretations, one of which makes something not make sense, and one of which makes something make sense, you take the one that makes something make sense because you assume that the stronger argument is what is meant. It's also interesting to note that the, the thing about the TSSI properly representing Marx, it's actually kind of the only thing everyone agrees about. Even TSSI's harshest critics, they don't go in and you know say that, oh, Kleiman and, and Freeman and the TSSI people, they're, they're misconstruing Marx and, and we're doing the more faithful version. They don't claim that. They they all sort of either implicitly or explicitly say that, yeah, the TSSI is the fairest representation of Marx, or at least an accurate one. But the critics of the TSSI usually sort of use that to say, well, that's why Marx is wrong, and that's <laughs> why our models are right. <laughs> They're inconsistent, and they move the goalposts because they will present themselves as representing Marx until you bring this up, and then they'll be like, well, yeah, but Marx is wrong, and we're correcting Marx, and so I'm Marx now. To be fair to, this is not just true in Marxian economics, like the the orthodox Marx, even if every single point of Marx is wrong, <laughs> like, right. we, we could still be orthodox Marxists because of methodology that we also don't mm-hmm. state. No, because he rocks a good beard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that like the uh, Lukashian reading of Marx? Yes, that's exactly yes. the Lukashian reading of Orthodox Marxism. Is every single point of Marx could be wrong, but if the formal methodology holds, even if we change definitions in it, which means the formal methodology actually technically doesn't hold, but whatever. Um, <sighs> We could still be orthodox, and like that's nutty. But anyway, so it was it was supposed to be a troll. It was supposed to be a troll to the orthodox Marxists of the day, but it became its own like kind of critical theory orthodoxy. And, well, and like, I think a lot and it, of people it, cite it, this stuff when they do this crap to Marx. I really do. Well, like, well, the weird thing is, is that the analytical Marxists very clearly say, like, look, there's no Marxist methodology. Right. Like, but then they go and do this like funny stuff with Marx anyway. So people with different frames of reference have somehow all converged on this terrible reading of Marx. And that's probably the thing that made it most convincing to even to specialists is that everybody basically agreed on what Marx is. Like in, in the Cold War, there is a similar 
grappling with Marxism. Everybody basically agreed what Marxism was, you know, and it was, except for the dissident Marxists that were like, no, wait, please. <laughs> yeah. Marxism isn't Stalinism. And, and now Marxism isn't goddamn Schrafianism or whatever the hell we want to call well, it. Uh, it. There's a lot of, so Schrafianism, I actually don't think is the predominant form of Marxism you're going to encounter, frankly. But yeah, it's like <laughs> more of this postmodern. But well, when it comes to economics stuff, it is this simultaneous stuff. Yeah, it is Mosley. It is Shaikh. It's all these guys. Let, let's just read number seven here. Seven is basically. It's tied into number six. If all results in point six hold true, whether or not faster productivity growth actually causes prices to fall, it only needs to lower the rate of inflation. Okay, so that's a kind of a technical point. That's not a not a major one. Eight. Who wants to read eight? Lexi, give it a go. Let's do it. Uh, Borkovich did not prove that Marx's account of the price value transformation is internally contradictory. Simple reproduction can occur when input and output prices differ. Hence, there was no logical need to correct Marx's account. The so-called, quote, correct solutions are actually alternatives to his. This is, again, another variation on the single system theme. Simple reproduction can occur when input and output prices differ is then also connecting to the simultaneous theme. This is kind of the logical heart of the TSSI maybe in one retort to one thinker. That's all here. The big reason why Marx's theory fell apart is because they thought there was a problem with the transformation problem. And that was used to do all the other stuff. So this is a major, for me, it's a major, major result. It shows how the transformation problem occurs. And, you know, it's not an issue. Anybody yeah. who thinks it's an issue either doesn't understand it right or is doing it for their own reasons. Yeah, and the and correct solutions are different. Like the, when people work out Berkovich's answers to, to correct solutions, they're actually not the same thing. Totally different thing. It's apples and oranges. Yeah, but Paul Sweezy says that this, you know, refounds Marx on a new basis where we could finally do the science we wanted to. He was he was high in goofballs during that period of his life. Well, so am I. <laughs> not an excuse. Goofballs? You're, you're taking goofballs? Extra strength. Extended release. <laughs> Extended release. When Marx is interpreted as a single system theorist, all three of his aggregate value prices of qualities are obtained, meaning all the aggregates work. You don't have to block one out. This this one's actually not clear if you don't know the 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 background of number eight, but because the reason why the Blokovich's things don't work is the aggregate uh, qualities don't work. Yeah. So not only does it make sense of Marx's text, it also makes sense of the implied mathematics or the explicit mathematics in Marx's text. For the love of God. So Marx really liked those three aggregate price values. They were the things that basically made him think he had solved the transformation problem. Okay, so number 10. We're really rocking through this. This is good. We'll be finished in 10 seconds. 10. <laughs> However, uh, when Marx is interpreted as a simultaneous single system theorist, the rate of profit is physically determined, contrary to what he concluded. Hence, the logical validity of his account of the transformation is fully confirmed only when he is interpreted as a temporalist. So this is very important. If you are a simultaneous, one of the things that happens is that the rate of profit is not determined by the amount of labor time, but it becomes determined by the physical surplus. So it's a physical rate of profit. We started with 100 bushels of corn. We now have 120 bushels of corn. Our rate of profit is 20, regardless of the amount of extra labor, surplus labor that's involved. 
So like you can't hold a labor theory value in your head and simultaneous valuation. If you're doing that, your theory is illogical. It's, 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 it's invalid. It's their contradiction of each other. Right. So and yeah, that, in the like strict syntax contradiction, not even in that hazy Hegelian contradiction way. Like it's a direct contradiction. You can't do it. Exactly. It's it's a it's a logical, analytical, logic, mathematical logic problem that is showing that your theories are incoherent. Full fucking yeah. stop. That's what's the most challenging thing about, you know, I just uh, pointed to Fred Mosley as an authority because he was editing Marx's manuscripts. But, you know, at least according to Andrew, right, uh, Mosley is doing the simultaneous valuation, even though he has, you know, very different and much more textually, you know, sound like uh, justifications for doing whatever he does. Then he's still doing something crazy illogical, too. Well, he, um, he has some textual stuff to back him up, but he's loads of stuff that goes against what he says. Well, you know yeah. what I mean. Like but the guy is steeped I know, in I know. He's steeped in a val. You know, oh, you know, you have to really understand the subtleties of the third critique. It's historically relative. It's just blah 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 blah. Like he's got all this nice like post-Marxist scholarship down. Well, you know, language, but also like I don't know. The post-Marxists have something on the old Marxists and that they don't give a shit about anything. So they're not like as motivated to do anything. So they don't have the motivated reasoning problem because they're just sort of nihilists. And so they could actually fucking read without things getting in the way. And, and that was a good wave of scholarship, even if, you know, they're not, you know, paragons of virtue. And so the Marxists that read this stuff, I feel like I shouldn't be making these mistakes. Andrew implies that, that his incoherence is an error on his part. The, the implication is Mosley doesn't think he's a simultaneous, but he actually is. That was the yeah. argument. Yeah. It's not only that that's, argument. That's... It's that too, and that yeah. he's not representing the text. It's it's a double point. Yeah. He, well, he had he had to he had to he had to text proof. He didn't have a whole text reading. It's like when you pick a. And Marxists are notorious for doing this. Frankly, like right, cherry picking, cherry picking Marx like it's friggin' Bible verses. To, just throw out people <laughs> like yeah i mean i mean the the, the beef between andrew and and, and mosley not that i think we should spend too much time on it but but the way i've understood it is is basically that it, it's it's about the transfer of value from constant capital mosley is saying that it's the value and andrew is saying that it's the price and marx actually in capital volume one clearly says that it's the value but Andrew is saying that, look, if we do it by uh, saying that it's the value that transfers, then Marx's theory breaks down. So we should look at the whole of Marx's texts and try to make it make sense. And if he somewhere says that it's the value, then we might just, you know, interpret that as, as an error or, a, or an oversight on Marx's part rather than as scripture or whatnot. But the point there is also then volume one that, that Marx equates value and price. So when he says value in that sense, you could be taken as price too, if they're both supposed to be equal. Yeah, because they're that, equal throughout the book. They're equal all the way through volume one. You can even make the text make sense that way and not say it's an error, couldn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think when you leave later volumes, it becomes impossible to maintain. Yeah, until yeah. volume three, there, there's no theory of price. And they think that there's a like a labor theory of price. Like I get this a lot from people that have only read volume one. 
happened to me all the time. I was at the bus stop the other day and there was an old woman with her shopping and she said, I would think there's a labor theory of price and not a labor theory of value. And I had to say her straight. <laughs> I wish I was there so bad, Tom. I wish I was there so bad. That is the, when, when you hear like street preacher refutations of Marxist economics, that is what they mm-hmm. fight against, is the labor theory of price. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, well, I made yep. this cake and I sold it for uh, $200. So I made this mud pie and <laughs> sold for 200 bucks. And uh, so there you go, Marxist. Gotcha. Yeah, luxury goods. Socially. Exist. Yeah. Like. Well, anyway, so that number 10 has the heart of the interpretive controversy. The interpretive controversy between serious Marxist adults is in number 10. Yeah. All, all, the, yep. all the others are not serious Marxist discussions, really. Let's. let's no. We all got bogged down on Mosley, not just here, but when we were actually discussing this, because Mosley was the one where I'm like, this is actually subtle and involves real, not just obviously transparently false. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's when I had my homosexual pangs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On, uh, mm, give in. Yeah. Relax. Now, let's go on to number 11. I've just got me taking me poppers there. Um <laughs> nothing nothing beats good butt sex uh jokes in the morning i said let me tell you that's my my mother always said (laughs) (laughs) i'm a tasteless man now here we go welcome back to grad school come town yeah Um, (laughs) so uh emmanuel you can't read what's on the screen at all can you Oh, yeah, yeah, of course oh, I can. you can. Oh, do you want to do number 11? I, I might, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, the fundamental Marxian theory, Marxian theory does not prove that surplus labor is either necessary or sufficient for the existence of profit. On all simultaneous interpretations, Marxist theory implies that there can be profit without surplus labor and vice versa. Pretty straightforward. I mean, he's just restating the, the things. And for those of you who weren't around for the episode about the fundamental Marxian theorem, the fundamental Marxian theorem states that, well, at least Marx was right in that profit comes from me paying you less than what you, you know you give me, and that's what all of it all is about. So we can have a corn theory of surplus, where you produce more corn than it took corn to reproduce you. Therefore, there is profit, and that's all we need to care about in in our politics and and whatnot. It's a little more ambitious than that, though. That's the Trophian physicalist like read of exploitation. But it was also promising that it would be surplus labor in particular, that you could recreate the Marxian exploitation theory of profit, you know, without relying on his value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, If that were true, if that were true, that if that were true, Hmm. that would make value theory much less important because oh it's okay we can just plug this into historical materialism and we don't lose the overall revolutionary bent you know whatever um sure but marx does say i mean the definition of surplus labor is the labor performed over and above what you receive as wages so if you receive corn wages and you produce more corn than you received in wages then you are performing surplus labor in the Marxist sense, even with Strophian assumptions. You got but me on that Strophian corn it, wage, it, man. <laughs> was, was this, this was the one with the uh, where it ended up with negative surplus labor and positive <laughs> yeah, profit? Yeah. 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 
the ones who departed from the equilibrium just a little bit. Yeah. This one was one of the more unusual ones. It is totally weird when you did the math on it, but if you were talking to men on like the Marxist on the street, this is the only one that I encounter on a regular basis. Think mm. about the way your your people who just shrug off value theory is completely unimportant to Marxist politics. Mm. How they justify it is this. Right. They don't call they it will- this. That's how they yeah. justify it. So this is the one to me that's actually, even though it's not a major point in the book, it's actually the most important one to deal with street-level Marxist errors. Because if you like map it out and show the logic of it mathematically, you end up with absurd you know, conclusions from it. So like, I actually think this one's weirdly important for like huh. everyday life. But like, mo- wow. like most of the street Leninists actually have a folk version of the fundamental Marxist theorem going on in their head. Hot but- take. Loving it. Yeah, no, you, you hear this a lot, especially from like college professors who want to teach Marxist theory. Like, they're all like, "Yeah, this is what Marx is getting at." You know, that's that's what that's what he's getting at is is this exploitation theory where you receive less than you produce, and that's really all you got to know. That's that's it, folks. Value theory is that's... mystical and esoteric. But most of your Leninists you argue with, that's what they really are saying. Like, value theory isn't important because all we really need to care about this is exploitation. And then you're like, yeah, but there actually are real-world implications to to you cutting the rest of this argument off. Like, it matters. It, you could come to absurd conclusions and calculations and stuff if you actually just focus on just that. And argument is so complicated. So why don't we just skip Marx's argument and go straight to his conclusion? Because his conclusion is obviously correct, but like the argument is weird and hard to follow. So let's just not bother. Yeah, so, yeah to be yeah. fair, because you can't trust any of the scholarship and make like a competent textbook. So yeah, yeah, no, this is true. I've literally had someone. It was the cult doc stars guy. Literally was saying like, I don't understand oh, yeah. why people care about repetitive weird texts like capital because it's not really important and and like again fundamental marxist theorem is what they're operating off of that's the only important thing no it's not he's thinking in terms of research program and and that's what the analytical marxists were kind of doing i don't know if the japanese economists thought of themselves that way but the analytical marxists pick up on them as if they are you know like they're the sort of forebearers of this people that are trying to be like all right look we need to keep our research program intact also trying to keep their political program intact. Well, yes, yeah. but but, like, but it's but the research program to them is instrumental to the political program. We were saying earlier, I think, to before the call started to Puya and Alex, was that it's like somebody trying to figure out what was trying to understand the man in the street, what was Einstein's theory of general relativity, and they said, Oh, things fall down. You know what I mean? And it's like <laughs> like you know, you'd be probably fairly that's probably ninety-nine percent accurate. But it wouldn't help you if you're trying to make a rocket. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so it's fair enough that the man in the street thinks about that's from Marx, because it is a major point. The fundamental Marxian theorem is a kind of a way, it's like it's like a rewired version of the theory of exploitation. And that is an important part of it. But like, you know, and it's not unusual that people think that's what Karl Marx is about, because it's definitely a massive core part, and it's an easy part for people to get their heads around. It's also the moral part. I think that was probably one of the most important things in Capital Volume 1. If I was going to summarize Capital Volume 1 in five minutes, I'd probably include that, the theory of exploitation. Yeah, theory of exploitation, theory of commodity, that's... The value form 
I, I'm going yeah. to get a 10 second penalty for that. The value form <laughs> and, and, <laughs> the, and the theory of exploitation, that's volume one. Yeah. Uh, primitive the accumulation. Capital, yeah, the circuit of capital and accumulation. Relative and absolute surplus value. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just read out all the Calgary's. fucking chapters. <laughs> it's important. It's, a, it's actually an important theory, and I'm glad that we get the chance to talk about it clearly. All right. Okay. 12. <laughs> no, wait now. The, the one thing really got me surprised with the fundamental Marxian theorem was the fact that even a thing there that shouldn't really care about time, that it falls on its ass when you make it simultaneous, that's something deep. That means that... <laughs> You know, it's true. To me, that was like, that's something you think that should be statically, you should be able to formulate. And even then it falls on its ass. Yeah, no, that's that's actually an important point. I agree, because it it makes this time element and the historical element, it's not just about narrativizing. Like a lot of people think that's what the historical part of you know, like historical material is, is like, you know, the narrative of history. It's not just that. The math doesn't work. You know, the non-narrative parts of this don't work if you don't have time in the equation. Okay, Derek, do number 12. When Marx is read as a temporal single system theorist, his theory implies real profits exist when, but only when, surplus labor has been performed, which is like, duh. All right. Wait, wait. There's a, I think there's an important point in this. I think that, so too, Derek. I, mean, yeah, I, think uh, it, I think it's an important point because it's obvious. Well, <laughs> no, but uh, no, no, no. the real in parentheses, that's important, that the TSSI implies that nominal profit can exist with the uh, increasing rate of inflation if falling the rate of prices due to technical change does not outweigh the increase in prices due to inflation, there can be nominal profit. Wait, wait, is All this right, a stab yeah. at, uh, at post-Keynesians? To me, this is definitely something that has implications for NNT. I think this is also just a stab at the fundamental Marxian theorem as well. Because <laughs> yes. I'm saying that profit can exist only when surplus labor has been performed. Because profit can exist using the fundamental Marxian theorem if no surplus labor has been performed. Right. right. Yeah, because it's not accounting for nominal and real profits. I'm good. Yeah. No, that was good. That was a super subtle point. I would have blown right through it. Yeah, me too. I just said duh. Yeah, um, you two. You two don't have a have an ounce of Puya's <laughs> intellect. Okay, Puya, good man. <laughs> Puya, when is your podcast coming out? <laughs> I don't have time for a podcast. Yeah, Tom, Tom you should you should that. just give all your patron money to Puya. That would yeah. be amazing. I am so that, poor. That would be wonderful. That would solve all my I problems. I mean, uh, Puya is the only reason people listen to this goddamn show anyway. You know, but, that, uh, but, but fuck that, Emmanuel. How would I pay for my yacht? That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Okay. You, you can come uh, on Puya's yacht. Yeah. <laughs> I got I got a couple of them. I'll uh, I'll send one over to you, Tom. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send one over in my uh, private jet. Are we making yacht communism jokes? All right, let's go. Um, oh yeah, Freddie yeah. <laughs> Angles. Yeah, that'd be my that'd be my favorite type of communism, yacht communism. Okay. Yeah, it, it was a thing. It was a Holy thing. Communist of the uh, mansion tendency. The, <laughs> of, of, of the top hat monocle tendency. <laughs> okay. okay. Monopoly right, communism. Even right. if evidence that values and prices are strongly correlated and close were valid, it would not tend to support Marx's value theory owing to a spurious correlation problem. The evidence is invalid. Recent studies yep. have found that no statistically significant correlation remains after the problem is corrected. This also implies that values and prices are not close in the relevant sense. 
Yeah, because after you control for industry size by using uh, cost of production, you'll see that there is no statistically significant relationship between the value produced and the price that the firm obtains with the TSSI interpretation. Yeah, but but it is kind of intuitive if you're thinking about what Kleiman is actually saying here, which also... To be perfectly honest, I don't think Kleiman's critics understand the, the, his point here. So the intuition here is that why do firms or industries that perform a lot of work, right, why do they make so much profit? Well, some people will read that evidence and say, well, this just proves labor theory of value, right? Okay, so they have... Yeah. They have a lot of workers, and therefore a lot of labor. Uh, they receive the most profit, ergo, labor theory of value. Whereas Kleiman is saying, no, wait, hold on a minute. That's just because they're big. Mm-hmm. And if they're big, that means that they employ a lot of people. <laughs> so then if I can reduce all of that, if I can explain the same data set and just say that, well... What you're really having here is not a labor theory of value at all, because you're not looking at actual labor performed, you're looking at wages paid. So really, all you have is an industry size theory of value. The only reason why it looks like a labor theory of value is because they hire a bunch of workers, right? Which is a spurious correlation. But I, I I think it is really intuitive if you think about it that way, that, you know, a lot of work could also just be a sign of big industry. It, this is a mm. thing that's intuitive once you see the example, but when you have it stated in abstract, it isn't at all. Yeah, sure. But, but I think, I, I think quite, quite honestly, most of Kleiman's critics on this point do not understand where he's coming from. They, they genuinely do not understand why he thinks that this is the case or that you could control for anything in, in this regard. But, but so yeah. why do you think that is? Because I, I find it really, I, I don't have a lot of training in statistics and I kind of aim to, so I know how little I know. It's such a basic point. I haven't been able to follow a lot of the objections, but I just don't see anything that gets around the third variable explanation for this and the spurious cor- correlation. Just like, what was it like 95%? It's like when you, when you see an election in, you know, like one of those like Stalinist regimes and it's like, oh, we got, you know, 102% for the leader. You know, it's like, you know, something is wrong. Nothing in life is coincides like that. Okay. So maybe we should spend a little time on this point because we, ha- we've had an antagonist in the chat get really giving us a beating about this. And the clearest articulation of the objection that I've come across so far is that wages are a mediating variable, and so you can't control for it. The argument, or the theory that these antagonists, as it were, have underlining their, their maths, uh, and there's simultaneous maths and, and everything, the, the, the assumption or the theory here is that the labor theory of value presents itself or is mediated by costs. So since the actual labor performed, uh, so, so like the, the labor theory of value, like you, ca- you can't see it in the real world. It's, it's abstract, right? It's, so it's abstract labor. It's aggregate. But, but, yeah, 
but the way you can see it is in the costs of goods. So productivity goes up, that means prices go down, right, etc. So the inputs of a firm, right? Say you're Microsoft, you hire a bunch of workers and you have a bunch of computers, right? The, the labor theory of value presents itself for that firm as those costs. And so the costs mediate, they are a mediating variable in their particular form of labor theory of value. And if it is a mediating variable, i.e., so you have X causes Y causes Z, or like that's the thing, right? So meeting a variable is something that's in the middle of that chain. Necessarily. Yeah. Since it's in the middle of that chain and it's part of the causality and it's right in the middle, if it's a meeting, a mediating variable, you cannot correct for it. That's an invalid thing to do in statistics. And so the, the argument here is no, we don't buy Kleiman's objection. Because what he's done is he's controlled for a cost of production, which is a mediating variable, and you can't do that. But in there is also sort of tacitly admitting that you really do have a cost theory of value or a cost theory of price, which is Kleinman's point, you know. And, and also, like, n- no one has ever presented us, and I've been looking for it, with an argument of why it should be a mediating variable, Right evidence for it it's just yeah this is what our theory says so you climate can't control for it therefore climate is dumb right you, you have to show with evidence why it's correct to see this as a mediating variable rather than just two sides of the same coin and that's what climate does like if if cost of production and their sort of value theory in quotation marks if they correlate to such an extent with each other and explain the same data set exactly equally, <laughs> then it's probably not a mediating variable, right? <laughs> but there's also the, the fact that Andrew did the thing where he controlled for the cost and he would say that e- even if I control for the cost, your theory should still predict the bit that's ad- added. His critics, or one of his critics, uh, our antagonist, <laughs> would claim that, no, Kleiman got that bit wrong. That is not the case because labor is mediated through cost of production. So that's a wrong interpretation of what we're saying. However, I think that uh, their value theory is that the prices are randomly fluctuating, right? And the labor value is determined by the labor cost, right? The vertically in- integrated labor cost. And prices tend to gravitate around the labor cost because it's highly improbable for people to stay in business if they don't meet this cost. So I think in their theory, you know, the cost is the signal, you know, as they say. But um, yeah, wages are the other thing that matters. That's, that's, that's why I said when I first read this, but if you t- this is with the TSSI interpretation. If you take the labor theory of value with the TSSI interpretation instead of the uh, Farjun and Macover interpretation, then this data does not hold for the TSSI interpretation. Right, yeah. There's one extra bit, though, in there as well, is that in a reply paper that this is kind of after, I think, the book was published, in a reply paper by Cockshot and... I think Cottrell, 
they put forward a mimicked data set and then they showed how that it basically price and value were correlated with this mimic data set. And then Andrew mathematically proved that how they generated their data set was actually correlated, negatively correlated. So he mathematically proved the correlation in their reply paper, not a statistical proof or statistical evidence or empirical evidence. It was like he took how they did their stuff and then he went in depth. It's like a couple of pages of maths and he shows how they are negatively correlated in how they did it. You know, to me, I think that the, the Andrew's work here on this is very solid. As far as I can tell so far, I would like to read yeah. more. I would lead, I would like to read their responses. And I, I feel like I need more reading on this topic. But Me too. I thought Andrew's argument was pretty strong. He references a lot of uh, a lot of these papers also in the book because the the book has been revised and, and updated with a lot of these these debates. But yeah, Kleiman's reply to Cockshot and Cottrell is just bomb. Have you seen his paper on like the Christian theory of value? I have. I have. <laughs> that, what? that thing is hilarious. It's a, it's a delightful uh, parody of tautological <laughs> like statistical arguments. It's it's very funny. <laughs> Here is number 14. This is a part of the book that we didn't get into that doesn't deal with it that much, I think. Let me read this one because I'm in charge. Okay, I'm in charge. I'm not in charge. Let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I'm starting again. (laughs) This is anarchy. This is anarchy. This is the problem. This is why the left will never win. Okay. (laughs) This is goddamn communism. Fourteen. Bernbauer's critique of Marx's account of the value price transformation is insupportable. His key claim, namely that Marx denied that it was self-contradictory to hold that prices do and do not tend to equal values, is implausible and unsubstantiated. Also, Bernbauer's conclusion that Marx's account is tautological rests on a very controversial premise. We have talked about it a little bit in in previous episodes, so we can just, you know, link to them. Like, to me, this part of the book was very, this critique of Bumbavik, to me, I found unsatisfying critique, and I didn't find it, like, central to the arguments in the book at all, and I don't really think too much about it, to be honest. That's the way I feel about it. Um, Well, I think the reason that it's even here is that Bumbavik says, I don't know, he just makes an incredibly dumb interpretive error that, you know, you would do if you're motivated to, like, debunk something that, you know, Marx is basically like saying a is not a or something i don't know I, I, that's a really unflattering critique of bombavark but i i don't really think that that part of his work is very interesting and the only reason that it's there is because of the the later stuff that he's saying about the potential for tautology the controversial premises i don't recall exactly if that relates to bombavark's third thing critique but i think that's that might be why this is sort of bracketed off. And I, it wouldn't be like Andrew to just deal with the one challenging, actually challenging thing that Bumbavark says, but he also wants to deal with a common street preacher, libertarian talking point. Okay, we've gone through the 14 points. Andrew then goes into a long spiel on why does the myth of inconsistency persist? And a chapter, a subchapter called The Task Ahead, I don't think we need to go through that stuff again. I think we've talked a lot of that stuff to death. What I'd like to talk about now is, well, firstly, some people on the panel have had kind of negative 
personal experiences with Andrew. And I was wondering, what do they feel like after reading this book? And do they think the theory stands on its on its own? And does the experiences you guys have had, like to me, it would, if you if you end up agreeing with the content of the book after all of that, it makes it, it kind of sound even better. I, I have a natural tendency to think that Kleiman can be unfair with his interlocutors because, like, frankly, he's said stuff about me that, while in a very superficial way, could kind of sort of be true. And in an actual way is ridiculous. Like, he called me a McCarthyist, a Marxist McCarthyist. <laughs> um, specific instance is actually true that he's talking about where I sort of accidentally outed a member of his sect. The context for it makes that completely and totally misleading and unfair and he there are points for example when we talk about the akasha theorem and when we got bogged down in the fred mosley stuff where that did inform my suspicion of him being unfair with interlocutors however having sat down and gone through at least most of the shaffering crap i could feel like <laughs> um, that he does seem to be presenting it fairly and honestly I still have a hard time, uh, given not not only that personal experience, but also like knowing what MHI's politics actually ends up being, figuring out what this actually means or how compartmentalized it is from this other system, which, you know, when I talk about like the, the Marxist humanist forebearers, it comes out of uh, Danyaskaya's, you know, Hegelization of Trotsky, moving away from those Vanguard Party notions and the Leninist notions. Donyaskaya uses highly mystified language, which you would not get from this at all. And I've also known people who, if you were to present TSI to them, would like agree with Kleiman on all the points probably in it economically, but disagree with them on something else. And they get called, you know, Luxembourgist or something. Because there's other things that don't come up in this book. And there's other fights that Andrew has that don't come up in this book that actually emerge after it. But I think this book is ultimately really fair with like a few minor omissions and like one or two, I wish you put the math tables in an index. That's really where I come down on this. Yeah, so so I, I would agree with most of what you said, Derek. I, I think Andrew is much fairer to his critics in this book than his critics are of him, both having like read the, the critiques and and having read him and like my history is kind of similar to yours Derek we had a really sort of nasty falling out two years ago this was right just a few months after we hung out in in Stockholm and uh, he came over for a debate that I co-arranged with some libertarian strange people and and it was really nasty I mean we probably could never speak to each other again but reading this book really makes me miss him actually and really makes me regret that our relationship went it way it, the way it did because when andrew does what he does best he is so articulate and clear and i miss having these discussions with him and the ability to email him with questions etc because he would always answer clearly and and really uh, positively and and like when you were engaged with something that he was really interested in he would really go out of his way to make sure that you formalize your arguments correctly and and stuff like that makes me a little bit a, lo a little sad 
actually over what happened but i i don't miss the other andrew as i'd call right. it but but like this this book reminds me of all the all the all the good stuff and all of the all of the good times as it were don't look so sad i know it's over But life goes on And this old world Will keep on turning Let's just be glad We had some time To spend together There's no need To watch the bridges That were burning I don't have this like lingering fondness for climate. I did have, we had a wonderful conversation in Seoul. I met him in person. I hosted an event for him in uh, South Korea. Our relationship came up in a misinterpretation I had of him because of uh, something that Douglas Lane presented. I was not inclined to join the Marxist humanists because I was already in a group. And when I got out of a group, I had no inclined to, to join a, a group at all. The other elements of his politics never made sense to me. The kind of economistic approach. And by here, I mean, I don't mean like he's doing economics. I mean, like he, there was a debate between um, platypus affiliated society and him before they had a also equally nasty fallout. Although uh, they were mutually nasty to each other. Where platypus points out that Kleiman is probably right on all these economic assertions, but Marxism is larger than that. And Kleiman thought the economics was primary. And then the Trump campaign happened. And that was dropped like a rock. I, I actually, I, I, this is important because, and this is not to slag anybody off. This is, if you say this has political consequences, you have two options here. Either the person who has thought through this has compartmentalized their politics or has another theory that, that doesn't come up in this book that is driving things. Or you have to say, how did this very good exegesis of Marx lead to really, really weird and kind of bad politics that frankly ends up justifying the status quo? Just as, as someone who had like a sort of, I, I didn't have a falling out with him or anything. I just sort of backed away when I heard some of these things. But I, I had a tremendously, you know, positive experience with him on, you know, correspondence. I, I called him, you know what I mean? We talked like about value theory for like hours. I asked him for like advice and 
what do you do if you want to like do Marxism in school? Like that's kind of weird, right? Like I had positive interactions with him. I also never really got the politics going into this. And I kind of have adopted a theory that doesn't hang all that well with a lot of Marxist assumptions or like desires or even just a healthy personal desire to integrate one's life. But just that like, you know, people are super fragmented, basically modular, more or less. And that very much unlike the way Hegelians would like to say, there are a lot of parts of the way people think that are strangely cut off from each other. And I think it's actually one of the greatest strengths of the book that Andrew might reflexively understand something about this and want to abstract only the things that he's most certain of in a specific topic, in an important topic, so that he doesn't even, you know, really mention like Leninism or anything, you know what I mean? He doesn't, he doesn't mention any of the, anything political, really, in order to Ardley, just make that point. Ardley actually doesn't mention anything historical. That's not true of all his books, actually. His, his next book. No, no, no does apply a lot of this. But. Yeah, he mentions Leninism at the end of uh, Failure of Capitalist Production and situates it broadly in a sort of uh, left communist, sort of autonomous sort of tradition, sort of. But if you read that book, you have a very hard time. The MHI polemics just two years, three years, four years, five years later. So it's, it's clearly a modular understanding of, of I, I don't know. I mean, it's I, clearly I, a modular I, structure. I disagree with you because there's another theory involved in this it doesn't come out in these books and that has to do with Donya Skaya's theory of history it's tied into CLR James's theory of who the revolutionary but, subject is but before we get off onto this massive massive tangent if we think that Andrew is replicating Marx's account of capital and we'll get there in a second whether we all agree but I think we do agree you know Andrew's politics aren't Marx's politics people are different people are different lives and what I want to kind of get at Today that's from... liberal bullshit, though. Like... Sorry? No, no, no. Come on, yeah, man. Like, you, you have to acknowledge that, you know, someone can read a book and tell you what's in a book without their whole bong-rip philosophy coming into it. But the idea that, like, this is just a matter of, oh, this weird dude's idiosyncrasies, that's not true. Well, look, I think this is, we're getting exactly down the road of where I didn't want the discussion to get, to be honest. <laughs> Like, literally, I'm not trying well, to be I mean, smart. Like, like, I think, like, like what I want to get at is, like, what people think of this book and its political implications, not about what do we think about Andrew and his politics. Well, like, well Derek thinks there's they're connected. Be, there's an argument to be said that they are connected. But I think that also that can be overstated. And also we can just end up in a, a big, long screed about where people give out about yeah. Andrew. And I'd like not to do that. The thing is, I don't think this is really about like the Andrew and I's personal stuff is between Andrew and I and it's personal. The politics issue isn't personal. But like, I know that the thing is like, look at all the different people, like not everybody's politics are lined up with their theoretical understanding. I would say that's a majority case. And I think the, the more that you look at some of the greatest minds in histories of history of science, or I don't know, some brilliant philosophers, like, and, and even the, the way that you intuitively read as a good academic, a bunch of our important legal scholars and philosophers are like fucking Nazis, you know what I mean? Like, and people can still find things that are important to draw out. Like Heisenberg, he was in the Fry Corps. Quantum mechanics is historically fascist. Right? 
It's the uncertainty yeah, so like, of the humanity of your enemy. You guys are strong and, uh, in the argument. And that's no, 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 no. All right. Yeah, all right, you no, are. Right. You are. Then, well, then, then bring it, bring it, bring it then. We just had a whole argument about how this entire coherent stuff of Marx was actually completely relevant and had to be viewed in its whole systematic underlying. And to be frank, Capital was planned out as a longer series that dealt with every element of the bourgeois state, including the state itself. Marx never got right. there. Marx never got there. Right. But that was the goal. So when That's you say that, like, it's unchared, it's actually being uncharitable to what Andrew would represent himself to say, oh, it is just compartmentalization. And furthermore, yeah. this is not about Andrew. This is about the way this would inform the politics of the MHI. If it does, and if it doesn't, it is a cop-out to say it is just about how we all individually compartmentalize. Because no, it's not it's just not... an individual. That is a cop-out. Well, is it really because not every not every resistance liberal does value theory? Hey, I think Tom was making a a, a moderator point, not a philosophical point about compartmentalizing. Right. He was making the point like maybe we should move on. <laughs> that's how I that's how I read Tom. I was making the broader point. Yeah, I'm actually arguing with Lexi, not Tom. Yeah, but I kind yeah. of agree well, with well, Lexi. Well, I think I think it's not a simple thing like the person's theory and then their politics is a function of that. It's not a simple relation. But we're not we talking about dialectically about We're talking about a goddamn group. Yes, right. but, but in reality, though, that group is a group. It's Andrew, and it's Andrew's group. You know what I mean? He's the figurehead. He's the guy in charge. He's the person who set it up. It's really his vehicle. Let's be honest about it. The way that's kind of like the great man theory. Well, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, no. I mean, like, if, reality, if you understand the history, if you understand the history of the the Marxist humanists, like they split like over personal contention. You know, yeah, it is. It is that is broadly true. Yeah. I, but anyway, I, I, can we move it along about yeah. to get a, get onto our understanding of of the text? I I, I, I would I like to do that. enough about that. I think we I think people understand our points here. They understand Derek. Yes. Your broad point. And they understand, say, or my or Lexi side of it, and they understand that we want to talk a bit about our own points of view. Let me bring in Derek. Do you think that you broadly agree with the text and that it does what it says sets out to do? It is what it says on the tin. On the margin of the fourteen points that it sets out, with the exception of maybe fourteen, which is a weak case, and number four, which could just be stated more charitably, yes. What I'm interested in for my own interpretation is when you take this out of the sphere of the analytic, where does it go? The questions that we were raising a second ago, to, to completely remove that for a second, there's a criticism of this book that I've heard people make that it has the same problem as the quote analytic Marxist in that it, its focus on logic dematerializes things. And... I don't think that's true, so I don't want to, but I think it's something you do have to wrestle with, and you can't wrestle within it, with it within just book itself. You actually have to look at the application of the book later. There is also a tendency in the book that makes me uncomfortable that you, one could argue that I was doing, but I was also trying to make a point here about this. Andrew doesn't, in this book, does not allow for his opponents to be compartmentalized either. He actually does posit that there is motivated reasoning behind most of these errors. It's not just a mistake. I think he definitely says that about most of them, yes. Not yeah. all of them, I don't think. 
I do feel like maybe with Sha with Shaffer and Richardson, you have some evidence for it, but it's very, it seems weird to accept that element of this book and then go and argue for the compartmentalization thesis when it's about something we like. That seems like in a state of exception. And that's what I was meaning by liberal bullshit, because part of this book won't let you do that either. I do but, think that's but, a but Derek, Derek, this he's dealing with a mathematical model. There's a good reason why he's not letting his opponents compartmentalize you know simultaneism and physicalism or whatever because he thinks that they're they, they like mathematically are necessitated you know one choice necessitates the other That's and he not has what he he, in the first three chapters and you know that, that in the first big. three chapters in the book like he does argue for this in the book that is what he thinks and to the extent that we're like you know super on board with a lot of these critiques we are we at least are provisionally taking on that thesis and it remains to be seen if somebody like you know mosley can you know dislodge that stronger case that the book is making the weaker case it does sort of imply the stronger case uh, but i'm not you know i don't know from my point of view is like i feel like that when i read it i feel like some of the theorists that are in there are being politically motivated i think some of them come up in their time and they learn a certain way some of them change some of them come on board with the TSSI. Some of them probably hold on to their own theories for too long, even though they mightn't have a, a political reason for doing it. That it's not a simple this than that in either case. We can't make it about all the economists in here that Ma Andrew is attacking. We well, not all of them. No, I don't. But, you, but I do think lots of them are. But I'm not going to name right. the case that they're all doing it. And similarly, if you're making a case about Andrew's politics, if we think clashes with this text for example that doesn't necessarily mean just like we say that it, it it's not always the case for for those guys being wrong we're not always going to say that that andrew's politics somehow has to follow from this it doesn't we're, we're, we're being consistent at both ends of the spectrum that's how i feel about right. it yeah yeah i agree. I agree with you, Tom. So should we talk a little bit about the criticism and the and the critics? You you were asking me if I was on on board with the TSSI or if I'm still if I still have my yeah. doubts or am I saved? Well, let me put it to the panel here. Let's put it to everybody. Uh, like right. I consider myself owned of the TSSI now after reading this book, and I have since I read it the first time. To be honest, and everything I've ever read on Marxist economics have always made me think I'm a TSSI guy. So, Emmanuel, are you a TSSI guy after all of all of this work? Yeah, with a few asterisks. Okay, so give us the asterisks. I still, yeah, so I still have two unsolved things. One of them actually was thanks to our antagonist, who pointed out something that I hadn't thought about earlier, but that I think is something that I at, at least would like to research a bit more and get the answer to. And that is the equalization of profit rates. Right. In the TSSI, that's done simultaneously. You have all the different profit rates from, uh, from the different industries. And then with a snap of the fingers, all profit rates equalize simultaneously with each other to the general rate of profit immediately. Marx does not make that case, but still in the maths that we've seen so far, that's what the TSSI does, or that's that's the way we've we've done it so far. I, I think that's kind of an abstraction. I think this is 
Yeah, he, he's, he's assuming he's, a certain level of competition. Yeah, and he's he assuming sure, like this dynamic, you know, equilibrium. He's just showing with these little play models how that equalization could happen. He's not saying in reality. No, 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 no. But that's that's not that's not my my point. My point is a theoretical abstract one. How is that okay. determined? What happens? Is there a locus for a problem here? I'm not sure if there is a problem. I mean, I'm I'm going with the uh, with the same line as as you guys are, but there's still this sort of small suspicion in the back of my head that maybe I should check this out a bit more rigorously. Yeah, well, that's how. Um, well, I think Marx's theory of uh, the falling grade of profit kind of assumes that there's a dispersion of profit rates, you know, oh, yeah, because yeah. you have these capitalists totally. that introduce the labor-saving technology, and they're increasing their own rate of profit, right? It's it's an equalizing tendency. It's not after they introduce yeah, the labor-saving but... technology, their rate of profit increases, but the total social rate of profit is decreasing. Like, 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 I get that, but, but, but still, it, it's, it's still a fact that within the TSSI, there's a simultaneous element going on, and I'm not certain that it's not a problem yet. That's, that's all I'm saying. It, all right. Well, yeah, maybe it's maybe, not temporal uh, enough, you know? I think these statistical arguments that our antagonists like so much, you know, I think they might be useful in formalizing Marx. There is kind of this, you know, this statistical element inside of Marx that isn't really formalized. There's going to be another yeah, critique sure. that comes out of this that I've been trying to make, though, that a lot of, that I implied out earlier, that the formal, the, the formalizing this in terms of an abstract logic is a methodological deviation from Marx in a way that actually mm -hmm. does have implications and creates problems. If, like, I, I was literally thinking about this as, as uh, Emmanuel brought this up. Like, if we have to do this simultaneously just because the model, just to explain it as an abstract model, the problem may be trying to explain it as an abstract model because Marx doesn't do that and he would perfectly be capable of it. You know, it, does that have any implications? I actually don't know. I don't, I don't know at all. But I know that when I've, the criticisms, the only criticisms of this book that, that I have taken seriously uh, myself that, that I still have, feel like the answer is that one um, and the implication about if it has methodological implications that are serious, which I don't know. And then the other one is the melt issues are still a little bit wobbly in my brain. That, that was actually my, my sec second asterisk. The suspicion with the melt is like, so I think Andrew and, and Ramos explain it quite well, but there are still a lot of people who think the melt is controversial. I would like to understand more why they think that's the case and why they think the melt is a shaky thing. I find it both intuitive mm. and I think it makes sense, but it rustles a lot of people's jimmies, and I want to yeah. find out why. I, I um, think this is related to the broader questions of monetary theory, and that I yeah. feel like that's a real open book in Marxist research because you know Marxist theory of money isn't very explicit or clear. Like yeah. It's not very consistent. Yeah. And, it's, and it's one of the most important things about our economy right now, yeah, what Derek absolutely. was relating about one of his doubts is really why I love this book so much is that it's uh, methodologically he's not he he never is making the argument that we should be doing research this way. The only thing in the beginning that tips off what his real kind of philosophical predilections are is that he thinks that the the qualitative dimensions of Marxism are much more important than the quantitative. Yeah. 
He says that right in the beginning, and he means that. But there's a crypto analytical Marxist methodology going on here, which is superb. It makes the book yeah. like really, really elegant and very, I don't know, ultimately, if you can like distill what's in it, I think it's an incredible contribution to the Marxist you know, research program. Absolutely, like, yeah. Anything I've said today that people would have found insulting to to Andrew, what you just said, he would find the most insulting. I know, I know, I, I, he, but that, that's the thing. I, I brought up that I loved, you know, his book and that I was also really interested in G.A. Cohen. And, and he was like, what? You're, you like analytical Marxism? That's, they're like the worst. You remember when you and I first met each other eight years ago, I think, or seven or six or something, like you were very young. Oh my God. We were talking about dealing with Althusserianism and, and analytical Marxism in um, E.P. Thompson. That's what we were dealing with. And Andrew was my gateway out of those. Like, it was my ability to be like, oh, I finally realized between Andrew and E.P. Thompson why I don't think Althusser matters. I am immensely thankful that I had... Inculcation to Althusser. Inculcation to Althusser. I'm also immensely thankful that while I do think Marxism is a qualitative theory of history as much as it is any kind of quantitative economic theory, I, I don't say that to deny the second one. Thinking about the economics as like where this all really pries out logically and the implications of that for other things has helped me avoid certain like cultish typologies of history that Marxists fall mm. into. You have like weird stage theories when and I'm a stagist too, but like stage theories like this bourgeois revolution happens here, therefore, like this next stage in the in the typology has made like yeah. it's a weird hermetic system and not material at all. I, I got offended by Polya blaspheming the Frankfurt School earlier and saying they're <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but this combined with that kept me from going in that direction, which I think I would have. Um, otherwise mm. so like this book is important and actually for me this is not the most important of Kleiman's books but for me the most important of Kleiman's books is where he applies this stuff the failure of capitalist production i only read this to make sure i understood that this book is good it is it is kind of arcane it is it deals with a lot of marxist problems that most marxists that you were to meet in like i don't know any marxist group wouldn't even know happened you know, and Lexi, you know I'm right about this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's it's true. Like there there are just these little micro events that you know for four people it, like determines the course of their lives or something for for a couple years or five <laughs> years or something. But you know, no one else is really affected. Uh, yeah. Marx has a lovely quote in this circular letter to like Babel and Leibniz and whatever, where he's talking about like these party professors that join with their own predilections and like just get involved in these total confusions. And they're, they're only really good for being intellectuals, but they can't even really do that. And fortunately, no, they're not really, no one's really going to listen to them. Like <laughs> it always reminds me of that quote. Like, you don't really have to worry about these people because no one's going to pay attention. They're just going to keep spinning their wheels. And he's just like, yeah, Marx is, is best read against the Marxists. Lexi, so getting back to the original kind of question, are you a TSSI person then? And if, if yeah. you have issues... What are your issues? Because you were very much, I think, of all of the people that probably started 
most unsure before you started. How do you feel like this whole process has has worked out? I, I'm really happy we did this because it confirmed my overall read initially that, wow, this is pretty coherent and there must be some explanation, some explanation other than the debate for why this is being repressed. And I really actually read the last chapter with a sort of sense of purpose, being like, well, yeah, I guess it would be really important for people to like know about this, that this is actually the, you know, the true reading of Marx. And I was like, you know, but I, I just, I don't know, because I didn't, it's, I hadn't like waded into these debates very much. And I didn't, eh, you know, I just didn't have like the analytical skill set. And I had other analytical skill sets. So I knew what it was like and I knew what it wasn't like, you know, to, to be able to fully scrutinize all of these claims. The, the exhortation at the end where, it, you know, he's kind of like, all right, look, it's you have to do this. You know, you should you should do this like right now. And if you interact with him, he'll ask you to sort of like promote the interpretation. Years ago, I wasn't ready to do that because I knew what I didn't know. And now that I have a better sense of the debates around Marxist economics, I think it's pretty much incontrovertible that the temporal and the single system stuff are both, you know, the reading of Marx because it's like it's the only way to actually get his conclusions. And Andrew, in the limited point that he's trying to make in this book, is 100% right. Now, like that, yeah. There's, there's, there's some specific quibbles that you know. For me, it's, it's not even like. I love how limited in scope the book is because you could still feel like that. You know, the third thing argument doesn't go through totally. But if you accept for autonomous reasons that labor is important, or if you just, you know, if you have like a good, you know, extra premise that you know just does the thing that it needs to do or whatever, this all still works. Or um, if you want to plug this core into like an econophysics project or something like that, you could. You can take this research in a lot of different directions. If you want to create rational choice micro foundations for this, like the analytical Marxists did, you could. You could actually make a robust research program out of this as long as once you compare it to the broader spectrum of methodologies, you feel like Marx really does have the best theory. But what this book lets us do is finally test Marx's theory, right? Because now we yeah, know really basically point. what it is. And that's, that's why Andrew you know, doesn't even really want to say that it's true. Because if anything is abundantly clear in academia is it doesn't matter what is true. You know, the point is that this is the position that this guy had. And that's as that is like as much as he wants to do, and in that the book is a smashing success. As far as an interpretation of Marx, I, I don't really see that much room for an alternative interpretation. I, I feel I feel like it was important. It's it's you know important for to re always retain your right to disagree because you don't know what you don't know. There's still interesting like objections. You know, like a better built statistical argument could happen. You know, Fred Mosley has like, a, he's just really reclining in German manuscripts. But like Michael Heinrich, you know, I think you can do that and kind of get some stuff kind of weird or wrong or have motivated like ways of presenting things, even though your research is overall, I think, you know, very useful. 
the, my, my only hesitation with with that, Lexi, is I do feel like Marxism actually makes larger Marxism, or Mar, even Marx's socialism, not even Marxism as a historical tradition, makes larger claims than just what is discussed in the TSSI. This is one element of a Yes, of, of course. But what we're really talking about there is Engels's project of, of uh, systematized Marxism. No, you're not. Which, you're not yeah, you're not. come on. Like no, historical okay. materialism, let's, historical let's materialism in Marx isn't like ex, as ex, it's not explicit. It's, it's like it's it's kind of behind the scenes, and you, you get like a more spelled out version. I'm gonna of throw it. a critique of the Goethe program at your head. Here, okay. Well, you asked everybody apart from Puya. I wanted to say a few things as well, but I let Puya go first. Puya, are you a TSSI person after this process? Um, I think I'm disposed. I would need to read. More on maybe the econophysics stuff and see what exactly their perspective to do more reading. But currently, I think it's a great interpretation of Marx. I mean, Andrew did a great job in taking down the simultaneism, physicalism, and dual systems. Yeah, I think I think this was a great book. I think Andrew's probably one of the researcher that Marxism has today. Yeah, that's that's my thought. I didn't kind of say exactly too much myself. When I came to this book, when I went to read it, I was highly sceptical. Everything that I'd read out there was saying, you know, value theory falls on its ass. You know, I'd read my Steve Keen and all these other weird things. And it's like, I was highly sceptical and I left quite convinced. And everything I've read in the meantime, this has only convinced me more. One thing I would say is Emmanuel's point about the equalization of profit rates, I think that is a point. I don't think that Marx says they all equalize. These are like a toy model that the TSSI is putting forward to show how they can equalize. But in reality, Marx doesn't say they do equalize. So there's a tendency. And to me, that opens up. And I think the whole system of how Marx has described this system opens itself up to a statistical mechanics approach. Because if we think mm. about the, the key abstraction in the book is value. And that's a micro, it's Thanks. a micro phenomenon. Exactly. And a good way to model that for me would be a statistical mechanical approach. That, for yeah. example, what Marx would say, you know, the tendency is for things to equalize mm -hmm. would actually imply a distribution in reality. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So and there's I, also yeah. tendencies that, of uh, technological innovation, right? That exactly. cause some yeah, capitalists yeah, yeah. to have higher rates of profit and then equalization. Exactly. And Marx is not saying that at right now in the US, every capitalist firm has got 13% rate of profit. It's exactly yeah, what he's not sure. saying. So I think that the statistical <laughs> approach is, the econophysics approach is definitely an approach that I think has got lots of merit. And I know we have these rolling battles between us and antagonist DZ here in the chat. <laughs> and, and it's kicking off between myself and Puya and, and Paul Cockshot on one of his videos at the moment as well. Oh, wow. Of course, you realize this means war. But like, like for me, it's a good natured debate. And I, I think that their approach has loads of merit. And I think Marx would be very interested in econophysics if he was around today and i do think how he would formulate things would be different because the mathematics that would be available for him would be oh, yeah. so much better just, just imagine using some 
No, yeah. just imagine him learning yeah, R would... and doing like dynamic yeah. stochastic equilibrium models. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he would be using some uh, some numerical methods for sure. He definitely wouldn't be doing DSGE models, dynamic statistical general equilibrium models. Though that's for I don't think sure. he'd be doing those. But no, you I don't think he would. They're the worst of all worlds. You got to be able to like take maths like that and the technology that the maths are running on and un- he'd be doing un- unhook it. He'd be using yeah, complexity. He'd be doing, he'd be doing complexity theory and using anthropology because, like, that's um, true. Yeah. I, I don't want to be like all the person who's like, you guys are getting all weirdly technocratic on me. But um, I agree with you being able to deal with this econophysics theories is actually very important. But I am, I'm going to continue to reiterate against Lexi, which is funny because we, we tend to agree on most other things. Except dress sense. No, that's true too. <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm going to edit that bit. Lexi objectively dresses better than me. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Derek, everyone I... dresses better than you. Oh, whatever. Uh, I think what you say is Lexi dresses better than everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's... Lexi, I that's, that's, that's true. And, and, and no, not everyone. I mean, like, come on, I work with some people who dress like hobbits. <laughs> names. You know who I'm talking about. Um, so the bigger issue I have is that I think this gives us one one very vital element to deal with, but I do think we would be doing a discredit to the Marxian research program and what it initially set out to be if we thought this was the end-all be-all of what it is. And in, that includes writings after this. So like, you know, after the capital notes and whatever. To say that Marx was not interested in a in a theory of materialism and history, is, it's like, it's a weird claim I hear made all the time and I just don't believe it. Like, well, you're, you're leaving out an important adjective and it's like systematized. Like Marx had a lot of insights into this and, and he did have an overall like set of like methodological intuitions that he's working with. But like, except for, you know, some notes that he scrawled when he was like younger, he never really spelled it out the way that Engels does. And then like the dialectus of nature, his... As I pointed out to someone who was arguing that, you know, that's pure Marxism and Marx read it and okayed it, I'm like, actually, his comments on it are cagey. Like, he says he likes parts of it, and the other parts he's actually very vague in a way that Marx seemed to have been using terms of art for. The thing is, I'm not interested in a total, like, worldview version of Marx either, because I, I think there are questions that are larger than even the larger Marxist project would be. But I do think there is a theory of history that this this one element that we can isolate and systematize is part of and we would need to do this for other elements that are worked out whether or not they're a coherent system or not that, that we wouldn't know that until you actually formalized everything well that's why this this book is important because it brings us the or you know the orthodox you know version of the exploitation theory of profit you know, from which basically you get one of the paradigmatic cases of ex- of exploitation. I mean, actually, it's it's yeah. a unique case because it's weird and, and, go- and spectral and creates this weird like ghost math around the real world <laughs> that ends up governing it. Like it's fucking like yeah. invisible yeah, hand that, on that, crack. So the, the whole concept of of the broader exploitation throughout the modes of production, you know, over history. Like, it's very important that we have a co- consistent mechanism for understanding capital.
capitalism in that way. Otherwise the whole fucking thing might just be, Hey, isn't it great that we overcame exploitation in capitalism? You know, you could start doing that. I mean, that's, that's what this is. I was just literally talking to someone this morning on another podcast about how like, this is the thing because Hegel and, and Kant and almost all of the early idealists whom Marx is responding to and working out of, they come to that conclusion. Like, you know, they have the historical stuff. They have the, they even have like basically some notion of class conflict in a way, but mm-hmm. like the market's great. <laughs> like now we can, right. now we can freely, there's no invisible anything holding us back anymore. Well, look at the way the analy- the analytical Marxists are like the most Pollyannish, like pro-capitalists. When you actually get down to the a lot, of, a lot of their economics, there it, it's actually very optimistic. You know, well, compared to second internationalism in some ways. Yeah, it's you know neo Bernstein like revisionism, like and you know I kind of mean it as a compliment because it's very consistent in a way that you mm-hmm. know the modern social democracy is like cravenly like even even somehow even worse than the one of the traditions that one of the two traditions that sold out marx during the 20th century like yeah. is it even selling out marx like i don't know what it's selling out What's well it? they slapped his face on it we have to deal with it whenever we read them I mean, but they've also told me that marx is and I don't mean this is not a disparaging fight with with uh, Tom here. I swear, but they've also told me that Marx actually really is Keynes. <laughs> now, I'm not even talking about MMT here. Like this whole like there I, there have been articles that have all but said that explicitly. And that kind of stuff makes it, the battles that Kleiman was fighting in this book seem so so more more nuanced. Than- let's get things back here we're going off on a crazy tangent i just want to point out a very important thing because anybody see my my cat jumper yes what is this (laughs) yeah i've been really admiring it it's (laughs) edward munch's the scream with a cat's face instead of the the human Uh, i actually own that it is the world's greatest jumper i wore today to a party this is now the official (laughs) alpha to omega (laughs) lexi you're under pressure now for your Sense. I'm I coming am, up right behind you. That's not a euphemism. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am well, so getting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've, um, I, I, I forget if I mentioned this, but I have like a red Star Trek dress, basically, like Ahura has from the original series. I'm killing which it. Which is today. amazing. There is Life actually is a tank top version of this as well, which is even worse. Oh, <laughs> so b- before some... before we get too much into weird stuff there's um this thing that i have on on the tssi it's a paper by a korean uh economist uh he's a professor at seoul Mm. university he wrote a paper called an appraising critique of the tssi i think that's what it's called which is a really interesting paper it starts off saying that yes tssi is the interpretation of marx it is the only interpretation that makes Marx make sense. So he hands it to Andrew and Alan Freeman that, you know, yeah, this is the, as far as Marx goes, this is the real deal. But then he shows, and I have to read the math more closely, but he proves that the TSSI math can end up with infinite profit with zero surplus labor. He does it in a very similar way. Remember the 4P equals 5P thing? Mm-hmm. Where Andrew goes through 
all these ridiculous things and, and proves that you can get labor subtracts value and, and stuff like that. Ooh. He does it in a very similar way, but with the math from this book. I have to read the paper more closely, but I think it bears mentioning because out of all the stuff we've been handed that is a critique of the TSSI, this is the only one that I thought was actually worth, really worth getting into because Ooh. he does it all the way Freeman and Kleiman says you should do it, or, or at least that's what he claims. And he does agree with Kleiman and Freeman that this is the way to do Marx. Even so, he sort of sort of shows that the TSSI math can actually really break down and get some achieve some really weird results. That sounds like he's made an error though, if the because the mathematics <laughs> in chapter ten or in the fundamental Marxian theorem is watertight on not being able to get surplus value like infinite profit and no surplus labor or whatever. Well, well is is, yeah. is this maybe about like uh, nominal and real profits? This has nothing to do with the transformation okay. uh, stuff. This, this no, stuff. no, no, yeah. okay. This is, no, that's, yeah, that's okay. interesting. Yeah, let, let, let's keep yeah. going. Because I know it's, it's nearly 11 o'clock here. I know there's a massive part that we haven't done after what must be 28 hours, maybe 35 Ooh. hours of podcasts. Let me go to, to, to Puya first and we'll wrap up with Derek. <laughs> Puya. Do you think there's political implications from this work? Yes, but I think that they're revolutionary. Good point. What does that mean? Yeah. They're like, Marxists. Right? Yeah, it, it comes to Marx's conclusions. It doesn't lead to um, dismissing the tendency for the rate of profit to fall as a, you know an internal barrier to capitalist developments. I don't think that it necessarily Im- implies the politics of the MHI. I, I would yeah. actually agree that it's revolutionary uh, in the sense that it implies that capitalism could actually probably uh, metabolically sustain itself, although with a kind of gradual, with lesser and greater resettings depending on how it how it resets uh, over time. And, and Kleiman doesn't like do quadrivalent predictions or anything to try to like formalize exactly how that works out, but just puts it out there. You don't yeah. need quadratic waves for any of that. No, that's, I know, but that's like normally the answer. It's something else altogether. I, yeah, well, but that's just, Michael Roberts doesn't Michael think Roberts it's something else altogether. Yeah, I know, so, but like, Michael Roberts is is one guy. You know what I mean? And but so good. we could say that about Clement. So, like, uh, that's not the point. The point is, this to me says that 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 he doesn't he doesn't model that. He doesn't answer that question. Like, it's not answered, which is fine. I also think what we mean by revolutionary. And thus the actual specific politics of it still remain hazy because they're hazy. They're kind of hazy in Marx, like really. Like, yes, we know we need to overthrow capitalism. But yeah, that's that's what I mean. That it's you know he's like a bit more fragmentary than Marxism. You know, you you could have this theory and then kind of have all kinds of weird political stuff. Like you could be a communizer. You could be a reformist and have this theory. There is a third world is to completely believe this book. And Andrew got right. in a fight with him. I was fascinated by this guy because I was like, you, you, what? Like, he, he like, took this book and Zach Cope's book and, like, you know, not even, like, Jay Sakai, Zach Cope's book, and came up with a with a theory and totally accepted, like, both of Andrew's books. And Andrew was really bothered by this. It's, it's stuff like that that makes me feel that theory 
is 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 modular you know across disciplines you can plug things into different in sets of intuitions and have models that represent them in different ways in ways that you would never like this the creators would never ever want it to happen it's like a it's it's the way science has like a death of the author thing you know you can't control what people do with your work do we all do we all agree that there are political implications and do we all think they're kind of revolutionary or at least crisis you know is important yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in the way that marxist theory does like that's the real credit of this book is that like the political implications are marxist because the theory being defended is marxist I'm still finishing, Puya, I'm still finishing Grossman's thing. I read about 20 pages there yesterday of it. You what know, part are you on? When you, I'm on the last part. So, oh, um, the counter tendencies? Yeah, God, I'm at the, like counter tendency number 14 or something. But it, <laughs> uh, like to me, like like there is literally that money in there. Like as a, as a kind of companion book to read with, say, after reading that, I would recommend people to do it because it brings brings out what, what does actually this abstraction of value mean like to me that's it's very important to resurrect this idea of marx's value and to it, it should reinform scientifically reinform how we think about the economy and to me that's very important just to let you all that's know a... I, I i read a tweet here about the hegelian dialectic that i i thought i should share with you <laughs> this is from opinion scientist he says hegelian dialectic explained at last thesis dick Antithesis, but synthesis, dick butt. <laughs> <laughs> That's fixed, damn it. It's fixed. Okay? It's fixed. Oh, God so, so dick butt is the negation of negation. <laughs> That's right. You heard it. <laughs> the negation. I thought you would all enjoy that one. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's it, hilarious. Let's wrap it up off. then. Any last thoughts? I must say I really enjoyed doing the reading group. I think it's got me really enthused. I'm kind of looking forward to the McNair one. How do you guys, how do you feel about it after all of this? Has it been worth it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was uh, worth sacrificing half a year's Saturday nights for. I would like just, just fucking one Saturday night, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Fucking not talking about obscure Marxist theory this shit, but barring that, this has this has been totally wonderful. I've drunk as I've I've drunk as much beer as I would have otherwise anyway. <laughs> so, Emmanuel, are you telling me that you're sitting at the side of the road in Kyoto, like drinking a twenty-four ounce? Is that what's going on here? Can we all say a very large group goodbye to everybody? Thanks for yeah. everybody. We'll see you anew in the new year with Revolutionary Strategy, Mike McNair. Get yourself a copy. You can buy it on Hulu. It's only about a tenner. Read it. There's also PDFs floating around. It is short. It's only about 200 pages it, uh, less. It's about 170 pages of reading. It's not like a TSSI book we've just read. It's a much easier read. It's kind of historical and political. So everybody, sign awesome. out. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy, New, New, Year, Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy Felicitations.
on this episode. You heard the theme tune, The Order with the Pharaonic Jesters, and Perry Como with his cover of the Chris Christopherson classic for the good times. We're now listening again to Sunra and his orchestra with The Night of the Purple Moon. Thanks for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>